Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner room shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. Okay, so lots of people, and he's warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is yeast. Pharisaic something spreads. What is it about the Pharisees he's warning about? mindset or the attitude that... Yeah, what does he call it? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. So he says, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. What is that saying? How are the Pharisees hypocrites? He has said that, said that a few times uh, in the Bible, but how is that so? They claim to be so concerned about the law, but they don't keep it themselves. So they were trying to portray a false image. They tried to seem devout, but they weren't. And that idea, that that mindset is contaminated. You know, we can get into that mode of trying to look good, not be good. You know, in fact, people will say sometimes, how can I get people to see me as blank? How can I get people to see me as honest? How can I get people to see me as diligent or see me as caring or, you know, whatever? You know what? I think the best answer to that question is be that way. Be honest, be caring. Be that way. I don't know how you get people to see you that way other than them seeing who you are. I mean, I don't even know that that ought to be our goal. You know... Are we really that worried about how people see us? I mean, in the long run, I suppose most people will end up seeing us pretty much the way we are. But if they don't, what are we going to do about it? We still need to be what we ought to be. But this idea of putting on a mask, you know, keeping up the image, won't work. I think that's what Jesus is saying in 2 and 3. Now, 2 and 3 are challenging, and... Jesus uses little statements like this in other contexts to mean other things. But I think in this context, what is he saying about the Pharisees? Their judgment's coming. Their judgment's coming. What's going to happen to them as their judgment comes? They're going to be exposed. Yeah. Their true state will be revealed. The hypocrisy will be unmasked. Um, And the judgment, you know, they, they won't be able to hold up under scrutiny. Even their most confidential words that they whispered in the dark or whatever will be proclaimed openly. They'll be mercilessly exposed. It's not always even wait till the end of time judgment. There's a whole lot of times when people's uh, masks are ripped off in this life. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to hide who you really are forever. You know, sooner or later, we let the mask slip. And so he's just saying, you know, just don't think you're going to be able to fool everybody by acting all holy when really you're corrupt. I mean, how many times have those things been exposed? I mean, there's just all kinds of ways things come out. I think God's behind that a lot of times. Um... And how often are we hypocrites? How often are we two people? You know, we look good around Christians. We're really concerned about looking good. But, 
in reality were corrupt, if people only knew what we were doing when we were by ourselves or in our home or whatever, we become really dishonest. And, I mean, we've got to stop that. We've got to, you know, be more real. And I think we act like if we hide it from brethren, we hid it from God. And that's not true. He sees it all. And one day, at least in the judgment, if not before, our true colors will come out. And what would it be like if people knew who you really were? Thoughts and comments? It's it's also it's the the danger, the fear in being real is that people are gonna reject you because they found out, oh, you're not actually that perfect person. And I think sometimes we need to be aware that if someone is going to be more real and be more honest, then not only should we also be more honest, but we need to be able to accept that they are being honest. They're not, I mean, it's not a accepting their sins and, and thinking, oh, that's okay, but encouraging them to get better and get better without the mask, but also to continue to be real. Let me see your, you know, the dark side or the the jagged edges of your thing and we'll work on it together as opposed to yeah yeah we can do that with our kids we can make sure don't embarrass me in front of you know these people and you know work on behaving right not being right as the main goal Um, you know here's one of my observations maybe this is just me but this has happened to me several times, and it sort of, I got to thinking about it, and I think there's a reason. You know, have you ever tried being in, you're a friend, a friend relationship with somebody, and it just never works, like, just never seem to have a connection, you know, it just, it just always seems really, I don't know, you really try, you really try to open up, you try to reach out, you try to do whatever, and it just seems really flat. That's happened to me. Various times in the last, you know, 30 years. And almost every time, I came to realize in time that the person was hiding a bunch of stuff. It's hard to have a deep relationship with a mask. It's always going to be superficial. And there have been times when I've like, what am I doing wrong in this relationship that I can't get close to the person? And most of the time it's like, oh, it wasn't me doing something wrong, it's the... They just, it was just a mask. So, you know, if if we're wearing a mask, if we're not real and authentic, we're not going to have deep relationships with people. We're not going to really be able to be close and, and really be able to help and be helped because we're not really being real. Thoughts? I thought that about trying to be a good example. Yes. <laughs> For the purpose of... <laughs> yes. And the key is being a good example instead of trying to be good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're good, that will be your example. Right. If you're not, 
you're not going to be a good example. <laughs> yeah, we use some of those terms that way. I agree. I've heard it used like that too. Right. Where we're mostly thinking, how can I look like what people ought to do? Yeah, it's like a special circumstance where I need to be good because people are watching. Right, right. I mean, because somebody might be influenced by the way I act. The rest of the time, it didn't matter. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. That's, I, and I don't really think, I, I don't know if we consciously think that, but that's the way it sounds. No, I agree. I've, I've heard it that way a lot, too. And uh, I think I think we do think in those terms a lot of times. Maybe not everybody uses okay. that phrase, but, but yeah, I've, I've thought that, too. It's a good, good application. Other thoughts? Four to nine. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Some of these passages are challenging to understand the connections. And I may have some of these connections wrong, but it looks to me like there is a connection. Why is it? that we are hypocrites. Isn't it that we fear what men will think or say? And what he's saying is, forget about what men can do to you. Because all they can do is kill the body, and that's it. Fear the one who can kill you and then cast you into hell. That's who you ought to fear, which obviously is the Lord. I mean... Our whole problem with hypocrisy and, you know, trying to protect our image is we're thinking about what people think. Forget about what people are thinking. Worry about what God thinks. Fear Him. You know, um, of course, he's assuming with that life beyond the grave, you know, he can do more than just kill you. Jesus obviously talks about uh, the afterlife a good bit. Um and, and maybe we wouldn't be so worried about the approval or rejection of men if we stopped and thought about the fact they can't really do much to us. They, all, most they can do would be kill us, and we're still with the Lord. Think about the close, the, think about the concern God had for, has for us. How does he illustrate God's concern for us? By comparing us to sparrows. Yeah, and uh, how valuable are sparrows? Apparently not very valuable. Not two. They sell five for uh, two cents. Apparently the idea is sparrows cost a penny a pair. But if you bought two pair at the market, they give you a volume volume discount and throw in an extra one. So you get five for for two pennies, or two coins, whatever. Uh, So they're not very valuable. Uh, We can see that. I'd probably spend that much to get rid of them. But, uh, you know, we we don't... uh, You know, we don't like them. And yet, God, you know, cares for them. You know, he he doesn't forget any of them. And then he makes the comment, 
you know, you're more valuable than many sparrows. It's comforting, right? <laughs> uh, but, but you know, the point is, God really does care for us. He even cares for the sparrows. Um, you know, animals aren't people, too, contrary to what some people think. Uh, he also numbers the very hairs of our head, which are getting fewer on mine. I understand the average human has like 140, 145,000. I think I'm probably bringing down the average a little bit these days. But, um, but wow. And the point is, God cares about us deeply. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. Don't worry about what people think about you. Just trust in the Lord. He loves you. He'll take care of you. And then, you know, confess him before man and don't deny him. Again, what keeps us from confessing Jesus before man? It's man, right? And their approval or fear of their rejection. Hey, forget about what people think. Confess him before men. Don't deny him before men. Don't worry about them, you know, not approving of your standing up for the Lord. Uh, are we really willing for people to know we love the Lord? Are we, are we talking to them about the Lord? Are we too concerned about our image before men? So to me, the common theme in 1 through 9 is worried about what people think and not what God thinks that makes us a hypocrite and give, makes us shut up about the Lord before men and things like that. And if we really understood how short-sighted hypocrisy is and how much God cares for us, and he's the only one we really need to fear or really need to be concerned about his opinion of us. Thoughts and comments? The first part of that is really sobering, and the second part is as sobering as the first part is. It's it's that much more encouraging. Um, it's not that he's just trying to scare us into uh, behaving right, um, but just understanding that perspective. Mm-hmm. Good point. We don't need man as a backup plan either. I mean. If you forget that God cares for you, you're like looking around, so so who else is going to take care of me, or who can I turn to if God fails? And that's another reason why we want to get the approval of men and, and to be the, the good example and the, in the way we've been using it, so that they'll like you, if, even, if, even if God forgets and, you know... He doesn't number all your hairs this week. So we need more trust in the Lord, closeness to the Lord, and then it really relativizes our, you know, what men think about us or do to us. It's it's a part of it's just um, well, part of it is, is just the prettiness of the language that confessing God before men and man, uh, the son of man will confess us before the angels you know, that contrast yeah, he'll confess us before an even higher audience yeah, good point, I like that who would trade the approval of the angels for men's approval I'd have that 10 to 12 And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you to say 
in that very hour what you ought to say. This is challenging. I'm unable to do as well with the context other than I think, you know, this may connect a lot with 8 and 9, the confessing Jesus, the denying Jesus. And then he says, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So what's the difference? Why would it not be forgiven if you speak against the Holy Spirit, but will be forgiven if you speak against the Son of Man? And why couldn't your blasphemy against the Holy Spirit be forgiven? I think those are questions that arise as you look at that. And I think it's challenging to answer those questions in the context of Luke 12. He didn't give you a lot of context there to answer that. You do have this. What does he What does he describe himself as in verse ten? Son of man. Son of man. You know, we read Jesus saying that a lot, about seventy times in the Gospels, and virtually nowhere else. Almost no one ever speaks of him as being son of man. He speaks of himself that way. But what does it mean for him to be son of man? He's man. Yeah, human. So you speak a word against the human Jesus. Well, that could be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, why would God ever not forgive somebody of something? Well, I say because they are hard-hearted and won't repent of it. God will forgive if we'll repent. But what we say reflects our heart. And you think about this. In Romans 10, he talks about believing with the heart and confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and you'll be saved. So he says the same thing in the opposite direction. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. You blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. I think in both cases, he's not talking about just the wording. What does what we say prove? What's in our hearts? Yes. It proves who we are. So it's not the it's not what's said that's the key in itself. It's what, what is said reveals about us. Now, I think the most helpful passage in understanding this idea of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, and I think you almost have to go here to really see the point. Matthew 12, Jesus cast out a demon, and they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. Which, why? These guys knew Jesus pretty well. They'd heard him preach, they'd seen his miracles, etc. How do you hear the best and most exalted moral teaching you've ever there's ever been? How do you see the most perfect person you've ever seen? And how do you see the most incredible, incredible miracles that have ever occurred, and say, I just does it by Satan. I say, if you can do that, you're pretty much spiritually petrified. You know, that heart is so hard, you know, couldn't break loose with a hammer. And that's in the context where Jesus, in verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 12, warns against being against blasphemy against the Spirit. But I want you to notice verse 28 of Matthew 12. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
the way Jesus cast out demons was by the Spirit. When they say he cast out demons by Satan, they are blaspheming the Spirit, or at least getting close to it, because he was willing doing it by the Spirit. Now, look at verse 33. Right after he says the stuff about being against his Holy Spirit, he says either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. For you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And he goes on for the next three verses and talks about how what we say will judge us because it reveals what's in our heart. And so I think when they accused Jesus of casting out demons by Satan, they were revealing what was in their heart. And it was a petrified heart that couldn't be forgiven because they couldn't repent. So I think the idea is, when we reveal such hardness as to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, as opposed to Jesus, because the Holy Spirit was how he was doing the miracles, you can see all these things and you still blaspheme him. And blas- that, then, then really, you're hopeless because you show you know just a hardened heart that can't repent. Thoughts and comments about that? Kind of reminds me of uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Like he said, send me the ghost. Well, if they could hear all of the law and the prophets, your ghost will do nothing either. Some people, if they harden their heart to the point where they won't even accept the power of God, then there's nothing else we can do. It wouldn't even help if someone rose from the dead. And isn't it ironic that sometime later another Lazarus did? Did it help? Not so much. What did they want? Kill him again. Yeah, they wanted to kill him and get rid of the evidence. A person who steeled against the Lord? Evidence is not the issue. The issue is you're, you're petri- your heart's petrified. It won't receive any impression. I think that's the word. That's the concern here. 11 and 12. Alright, so they bring you, haul you in before the rulers and authorities. Don't worry about what you're going to speak. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but the disciples are promised help from the Spirit in their persecution. Now, I don't think that means that they never have to study or reflect on their faith or even think about how they're going to word what they are saying in their defense or something like that, I think it's saying that they can count on the help of the Holy Spirit to guide them and to teach them in what they're going to say. I would say that's really true for us as well, that God will be with us. And in those really harrowing, difficult circumstances, we can trust the Lord to guide us. Again, not saying don't ever study or don't prepare or don't, you know, use wisdom. But he's saying it's not just you. I'll be with you and guide what you're saying. Thoughts and comments through 12. And he says, do not worry. Yeah. Which can mean a a number of different things, but the idea of just, oh, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And not, not either doing something about you know preparing but just being on the little hamster wheel of worry and not getting anything done and not trusting you know that you're an intelligent person and you can say the right thing because you filled your heart with the right stuff so the right stuff's going to come out because that's what you've done 
because you've been listening to the Holy Spirit instead of blaspheming Him. Yep. Very good. All right. Well, we've got a guy with a problem here. Uh, Jesus does some of his best teaching in response okay. to questions and comments and things like that. So 13 to 15. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who, can, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to him, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It, yeah, it looks to me like he sort of interrupts Jesus' teaching to ask what? For Jesus to help him divide the inheritance. What do you think about that? It's kind of rude. Yeah! He's been paying attention to everything else. <laughs> wow! But he at least thought there was some authority there, which is kind of odd. Maybe his brother would respect it if Jesus told him to. Yeah, I can see that. But it's like, uh, I think he's probably not quite on message here. <laughs> um, and and notice, he already knows the ruling he wants. He only needs Jesus to give his stamp of approval. You know, he doesn't say arbitrate the dispute, but, uh, you know, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. You know, so he more wanted to use Jesus than to follow him. A lot of people want Jesus that way. He want them to solve their problems and not necessarily change their heart. And what's Jesus' answer? And who appointed me judge over you? Yeah, not my purpose, not my business. Yeah, I came to bring men to God, not, not bring property to men. So this just isn't his thing. And Jesus really could have left it with that. I mean, that solves it. But Jesus adds a warning, and then a parable, and then a sermon. Because uh, he really wants to deal with what's behind this. So he, he's got a question, a warning, a parable, and a sermon. We've got the question in verse 14, the warning in verse 15. What's the warning about? Greed. Greed. And he says, beware and be on your guard. What's the difference be, between being be, beware and be on your guard? Being aware of something is just not being completely blind to it. But being on your guard isn't a, it's an active thing of like you're trying to make sure not just that you're aware that it exists, but you're trying to actively prevent it from coming into your life. Yeah. Sounds like you said about the same thing both ways. I think there's really not that much difference. I think he's given a double red flag here to say, really, there's danger. Beware and be on your guard. It reminds me of uh, the decree Haman signed to kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews. <laughs> Any one of the three would have probably done the trick, but he wants to get. He wants to be sure he finishes them off. So, you know. So I think this is like saying there's real danger with greed, and there are lots of passages in the New Testament that warn against greed and covetousness. I mean, we're even told to withdraw from people who are covetous in First Corinthians five, and a lot of passages that warn about it. You know, how many of us? How many people do you ever hear? How many Christians confessing greed as a problem? 
I say less than confess neglecting spiritual things, and confess uh, losing their temper, they confess lying, they confess sexual sin, they confess substance abuse. And so I really think greed's quite a ways down the list of the people I've heard talking to me about things they struggle with. And so I think one of the problems with greed is it's awfully hard to detect. You know, we don't realize it. What would be ways of seeing greed in ourselves? in which you choose in a particular situation whether you choose to do something that is spiritual but not profitable in the monetary sense or you know going for the money okay our priorities being dishonest or cutting corners yeah there's a lot of ways to cheat and oppress and get money and I don't show you you're greedy when you do things that are wrong. Lying sometimes. What else? Like checking your your emotions when you lose money or you give money or time or you know whenever. You don't get to do whatever you want without the money that you earned. Yeah, for sure. I think our desire for it, our desire for things, our passion. um, How about our complaining? How many times do we bellyache about how poor we are and how times are so hard and the economy is so bad? You know, you just can't make ends meet, you can't get by, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And then probably all kinds of other stuff. Notice what Jesus' comment is. Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Even if you've got a lot, that's not what life's all about. <laughs> Nothing of real value can be bought. So that we we got to realize material things are just not very important. They're not they're not what we're going after. I, I think that's a challenge. I think I think we are affected by greed more than we think. <coughs> And it's, wow, we like stuff, and we like, you know, the money that buys us stuff and all that. Thoughts and comments to 15. When we think about being Christians, being, you know, like Christ, a lot of times I think we think of actions, but the frame of mind as well. It's hard to have a frame of mind like Christ and to see things the way that he does and to have that perspective to be able to say these things don't matter. You know? <laughs> it's hard. It is. And they clearly didn't to him. But is it hard? We, wow. And I think we're probably way more effective than we think we are. I mean, we're so prosperous. We're just ridiculously prosperous. And the more we have, the easier it is, I think, to develop an attachment to those things. Um, and and really treasure them, value them, and seek them, and, and really put our heart into them. You know, I mean, the Lord may say life doesn't consist of your possessions, but I think for a lot of people it does, and maybe for us. So he adds a parable, 16 to 21. Oh, 
told them a parable saying the land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, Jesus kind of had a thing for parables about rich men. There'll be a couple more in chapter 16. Here's a rich man who has really fertile land and raised a bumper crop. And uh, notice how he says that, too. He doesn't say the man made all this money. He says the ground was very productive. The land was very productive. That's really putting the point there. Who gave him this crop? The Lord did. It wasn't him. We forget that. Um, but once he got all this, you know, property, uh, all this crop, you know, then, like, he starts talking to himself. You know, what's he going to do with this? And, uh, you know, he's got to, what, what's, his, what's, what's his problem with getting all these crops? place to keep them. Yeah. You know, he needs more storage facilities. But rather than building additional barns and taking up space that might be used for agricultural production in later years, he decides to tear down the current storage facilities and build something greater. Now, what could he have done instead of stockpiling the grain? Giving it away. Or... Sold it. Sold it, probably. Why wouldn't he want to sell it? Why would he want to keep it? It's worth more later. Yes. You know, he's not going to contribute to the current year's saturation of the market. You know, he's going to keep it for a higher price later on. So he's got a good head for agribusiness. This guy's on the ball. You know, he's, he's making a buck. Making a bundle. And so he thinks, I'll turn on my barns, I'll build greater... You know, and I'll get it to where I can just retire and things will go great. I'll just be living in the lap of luxury. And that would have worked out okay, maybe, except for one thing he forgot. Death. Death. Yeah. That's kind of an important thing. Uh, but he just hadn't reckoned with that and he was killed that night. So what do you see as this guy's mistakes? Borrowed the language of Hosea, he forgot his maker. Yeah, he did. He forgot his source of prosperity. He thought he was self-sufficient. He thought he could put in a barn everything he'd need. One thing about riches is they give the illusion of security. What else was wrong with it? Do you notice how he has eye trouble? He's very self-focused. I, 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 I. Yeah. I mean, he's just talking about himself, thinking about himself. He asks himself the questions and he gives himself the answers. <laughs> you know, I had a teacher in school who had always said, and I said to myself, self? Go on with whatever he said to himself. Uh, this is kind of this guy. He's not thinking um, about other people. He's not wanting to serve. He's all thinking about himself. He forgot death. 
I mean, what's going to happen with all these crops once he's dead? He's not going to have anything to do with it. Wherever they go, it isn't to him. Um, so, um, you know, I apparently this has happened before, where somebody was so greedy, they write themselves as the uh, beneficiary of their will. Hmm. How does that work? It doesn't. It doesn't, yeah. It's not going to help. You run the risk of it going to the government. Yeah. There's nobody who can take it. Yeah. Yeah, You're not going to take it. So we've got to reckon with our death and realize the things here don't last. This is not what really matters. Um, this is, he kind of gives it the caption. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this is like saying, you know, this is this guy's portrait, you know. Really thought-provoking. I mean, Jesus is wanting to really make us think about our attitude toward what we have. Thoughts and comments. Reminds me of Hosea, like Hosea 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his lands, the better he made the sacred pillars. And then it just goes on. And there was another passage that was a little bit better, but I can't find it. Mm-hmm. But has the same idea that, you know, you you start to prosper and then you forget. Once they, once they went into the land and they saw this stuff and then suddenly... Who's that God guy? I don't know. That. This this is mine. I did this. And... As one of the worst problems with wealth and, and things, they make us feel secure. You know, it's not. It's not. It doesn't make you any more secure. But you feel like, I know I've got it made. Now I've got things under control. I mean, if you're living hand to mouth, really, I mean, any day could could bring starvation practically. You know, any any downturn, you know, you don't have a, a safety net. We got all kinds of safety nets. But the truth is, you can die just like that. How, how much difference does wealth make in your longevity? A little bit. In some cases. But you know anybody who can buy their way into another hundred years? You know? Maybe they can get better health care and they die at, you know, 60 instead of 55. Or 80 instead of 70. Maybe. A lot of times it doesn't work even that way. You know, I mean, how many people died, died with medical care, you know, all that good medical care, and they die anyway? I mean, you know, it's like, we don't have the ability to extend your life indefinitely. Maybe not even extended whatsoever. So, you know, you can have a lot of stuff, and it still doesn't really matter in the long run. That, we've got to see that perspective. Other thoughts? Some of the things that he does here... Like, might also, might be some of the same things that someone would do, like, who's on the right track, who's, you know, just being a good steward and stuff like that. Um, so, I think sometimes we can fool ourselves thinking, oh, I'm being frugal, being responsible, you know, gonna try to stay out of debt when really maybe we're being materialistic and we just like amassing money. It, it creeps like up on us lots of ways. <laughs> Like checking my bank balance to make sure I didn't get scammed. <laughs> it's important too. Other <laughs> uh, thoughts? 
Alright, why don't we stop here for tonight and we will pick back up in uh, 12